0: The Missouri General Assembly's legislative session ended a long time ago. But lawmakers are seeking to restore in-home health care services to thousands of low-income and elderly Missourians. One of the people that's seeking a solution is Representative Justin Offerman. The Herman Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music.
1: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers.
0: I'm Jason Merzenbaum.
2: And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running
0: for governor, and I'm really,
1: really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back
0: And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a microphone that literally dropped (laughs) while the music was playing. And it wasn't mine. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. I'm actually the interim temporary editor in St. Louis Public Radio until they Political find a, per- editor, yes. a, a, a permanent replacement. Joining me in studio today is...
2: Colleague Joe Manis. I'm not brown-nosing, but so far Jason's doing a pretty good job.
0: Oh, well, I am actually overseeing <laughs> Joe. And uh, our guest today, whose microphone inexplicably dropped right before uh, he's about to say his name. Uh, ju- <laughs> Justin Alferman. <laughs> State representative for what what number district again? District 61. And, yeah.
1: ju- and just remind our listeners uh, what the, the boundaries are. Sure. That is uh, Northwestern Franklin County. Uh, northern Gascadade, northern Osage County, um, uh, kind of circulating around the communities of Washington, New Haven, Herman, and Chamoy. And you're Republican. Mm-hmm.
0: This is the second time you've been on the show, and something has happened since you were last on. You became the vice chairman of the House Budget Committee. Um, interesting side note, one of the people that you worked for politically, former state representative Ed Robb, was vice chairman of the House Budget Committee. I actually followed both Representative Alperman and then Representative Robb, although you weren't a representative then. I right. think,
1: I think you might have been like 23, 24. Something oh goodness, like that. no, I was younger than that. I was uh, 21, 22. Whenever I, I started working for uh, Representative Rob on his reelect campaign, and uh, it's kind of come full circle. I had uh, at that point had no idea what the uh, Missouri budget was all about, and so it, you know, hearing Ed almost you know 10 years ago uh, talking about this, and now actually being a policymaker in that arena, it's. Um, It's amazing. It's very surreal. Amazing how things come full circle in Missouri politics. But we're
0: going to talk about the budget first, because one of the things that's been left outstanding that's from veto session that people are still talking about are reductions to in-home care for uh, thousands of Missourians. Um, If you could kind of set the table of what the situation is and why we're even talking about this, that would be my first question for you. Sure.
1: Um, As you know, the the Missouri budget was um, not in a great place. Whenever we came into session uh, January of 2017, um, when going through the budget process, because of you know uh, lower than anticipated revenue growth um, over projections on spending, we had to cut about 500 million dollars out of the state's budget. When all the chips left in the, and fell, um, we had part of the budget process um, for a funding mechanism for in-home and health care, was the Senior Services Protection Fund. And we were going to pay for that by um, making some modifications to the circuit breaker tax credit.
0: Which is a property tax break for lower-income Missourians. Correct. And I think the particular modification that has actually
1: been floated for many
0: years is making it no longer available to renters. Is that the, is that true? That
1: is correct. I'm glad you pointed that out, because that was the recommendation from uh, Governor Nixon actually in his 2010 budget, or 2012 budget, excuse me, Mm -hmm. uh, was actually a recommendation proposed in his budget, um, and it was suggested twice by uh, then-Governor Nixon's own tax credit commissions. um, In statute, that is referred to as the property tax credit. It has never made sense to me why an individual would get a property tax credit whenever you are renting a Renting a uh, your your home because you don't pay property tax. Now some people will argue that you pass that on um, in the cost of of your rent, but that credit assumes that twenty percent of your rent is going to pay for the owner's property tax. That's just that's just ludicrous. Mm-hmm. That's way too high. So we went through a session. Um, that was the proposal from the House. Um, the Senate changed that to a fund sweep. Um, Would that the governor then? Vetoed because he claimed that it was unconstitutional.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to give a little backdrop on this, we've had state rep uh, uh, Deb Lavender in here uh, earlier. She's a Democrat from Kirkwood. She was one of the crafters of the fund sweep. And just so our listeners understand, what, she, what they did was they found dozens of bank accounts in the various state agencies and departments that had unspent <coughs> money, and in many cases these were accounts that were not being used for anything. So... The idea was to use that money, which was, what, about $30 or so?
1: Oh, in the fund sweep? Yeah. It it was more than that.
2: Okay. But the the upshot was to use that for one year to protect these in-home services for uh, the affected elderly and um, disabled. Now, the governor did veto that, saying that he just didn't see this – as a way to do it, and he wanted... For, to, for several reasons, right. from what I
0: remember, and you, you can back me up on this, Representative. One, he thought it was a, a short-term solution for a longer-term problem, and he Correct. thought that the way it was crafted was not constitutional. Although
2: many of the authors agreed that it was just a short-term thing. right? Right. But, but, yeah, uh, it,
1: it, it was probably unconstitutional, because I, I don't like that after the Senate got done with it, every senator who had a, a profession that took some type of, of fees towards those uh, accounts... Um, they exempted themselves out of that. Uh, the, to me, the, it's it, that's extremely self-serving, and it, it's it, again, I agree with that with that sentiment that it's a one-time fix for a long-term problem. Mm. Um, I like the House version, obviously. I was Mm -hmm. the handler of the House version of that bill. Um, That was subsequently uh, changed to the budget chairman whenever it came back from the Senate with the fund suite. Mm -hmm. Um, I voted for it on the last day of session because I did not want to be part of the problem of not having at least an option on the table. Mm -hmm. Once the governor vetoed that and, and, and made his intention clear that that was not going to be moving forward, that bill was ultimately dead. We could have overridden that veto. And it st- the fund transfers still wouldn't have happened because the right. governor ultimately had the decision. Correct. I mean, there's a big difference between may and shall. Yes. And it said may transfer the money, not shall. There's no possibility that the governor would ever have transferred those funds.
2: Now, uh, without – okay, there were a couple of special sessions this summer on other issues. Well, But immediately after the session, there had been, after the governor had made his comments clear within a few weeks, that he might call a special session on this to come up with some way to keep these services going. That didn't happen. And so hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. D- okay. Now we're, we're in October. <laughs> so um, now there's some who think that they you that the General Assembly might deal with this early in the regular session when they come back in January. Just sort of what do you see as the lay of the land right now on this?
1: I think there's a very real possibility that sometime in the month of October, early November, we will be called into a special session. Uh, during veto session, we made the we made the comments uh, on the floor, both uh, both myself and the budget chairman, that we would like to actually see a solution done on this. Um, the the speaker and the Senate pro tem. Both came together and said, okay, we're going to have point people on this, and we're going to uh, form kind of an unofficial task force. Um, That fell to uh, Representative Fitzpatrick, uh, Budget Chairman, and uh, Senator Cunningham. And together we've done about four conference calls. Um, both Republicans and Democrats, who are kind of in the arena that that know the logistics of the budget, that know um, the logistics of this type of population that we're trying to um, ultimately rectify. And then that is the 8,000 individuals who are now kicked off of their services because their points of acuity are not high enough. We went from 21 to 24, mm-hmm. and the 3.5 percent – reimbursement rate that we're trying to get back for our in-home health care and our nursing homes in the state of Missouri
0: so if there is a special session do you do you anticipate that the plan will look more like what the house wants where you you use the the, the circuit breaker as a way to pay for it or do you think that it could be a reconfigured fund sweep? I know this is a wonky question, but I want to know what the what the plan is you've talked so far. I
1: personally don't believe that at this point, a fund sweep is a viable option for the House. I don't believe that that will make it through fruition in the Missouri House.
2: But in at, based on the income that the state's been coming in, having come in so far, do you even need that? I mean, could there be a move saying, look, we're bringing in more money um Therefore, we can restore this program. I mean, a sort of a supplemental budget thing. is there a possibility of
1: that or not? I think there's a possibility, but I mean again, this is not the only area in the budget that is going to be need um, need addressing whenever we come back into January. I mean, we are already know and anticipate an $83 million increase in the foundation formula just to hit a full funding of the foundation formula. So you take almost, you know, let's round up. You're almost $100 million into that, you're going to get probably Medicaid over, uh, cost overruns. You always do. Uh, we know that that's probably coming. And then you know you you look at higher ed, you look at uh, public safety. There's so many other things that are going to be demanding and uh, being a call on our general revenue. And that's kind of one of the most precious things that we have in the budget committee is that that general revenue. I think when you add all those up, I'm just not sure that that is a viable option. Just to say, okay, well we found some extra money and revenue on the bottom line. Um, I I do know that currently with the task force, we have been tasked with looking at savings through through the Speaker and through the Pro Tem at looking at the Circuit Breaker tax credit. Mm -hmm. That has angered, and I don't think I'm I'm talking out of line here. I think that has angered some of uh, my my Democratic colleagues, Um, and and, and I get that. They would like to see a a different revenue stream. The problem there is we need to be able to start counting on this money reliable Mm -hmm. now and all the other programs that they're looking at for, uh, for cost savings are going to take at least a year's worth of collections in order to actually have that money in the treasury. Whereas if you get rid of the tax credit, that's money that's not being paid out. And that's why this one, th- this tax credit is a little bit different than any other tax credits. I mean, we're, this is actually us cutting a check to these individuals. This isn't, you know, like some of the other tax credits that are just in lieu of taxes. Right. So, this is real cost savings that we'll have uh, day one if it were ever passed. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we can make some reductions. Uh, some modifications to the program without eliminating the renter's portion, and that's always been the biggest uh, hurdle over in the Senate. The reason I asked
0: about what the plan is going to look like is the big rule of thumb when it comes to special sessions, not only in Missouri, but I think anywhere. Like There was a, apparently like a special session in Colorado that failed because the legislators and the governor didn't really have a – on the, they weren't on the same page about what the plan actually was. Right. So would you say mm. it, that in order for a special session to happen – the senate and the house have to agree on what this plan is going to be as opposed to just going into special session and debating endlessly over what it, what what the what the end result will be
1: i say this with just preliminary talks with the governor's staff but i don't believe that the governor wants to call a special session unless we already have the legwork done and a general agreement of what we're going to be settling on whenever we go back into special session. I don't think that we want to drag out a session for you know uh, the full 90 days that a special session could go for um, debating on what we should actually do. I think, I, I, and I think pretty much that we have a general agreement between at least the, the House and the Senate leadership of what we're going to be uh, working on and It just may just be, you know, fine-tuning it um, th- through the session and actually uh, hearing people's input on it.
0: So we'll probably be looking out for that news uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm
2: hoping well, with, actually, I'm hoping
1: for it within the next couple of days. Yeah, couple of days. I was yes.
2: gonna say it's October, Jason. Well, <laughs> well I've lost track of time, Joe. But, even but even Joe, I'm glad I'm glad that you brought that up
1: because even if so, say, say say we this drags out and we don't actually get a, a special session call because we're in you know mid-November and we still don't have an agreement. It, just, it still doesn't mean that I'm going to stop working or Senator Cunningham or Fitzpatrick are going to stop working on this because if it does need to run up to that we have to address this in January, I'd rather have a plan in place to work on the first couple of weeks in January and get this out the door by February so, and put an emergency clause on it to so where we can act because we're still you know six months into a fiscal year whenever we go back into session. Mm-hmm. So there's still some real cost savings that we can get. And at the end of the day, we're trying to make sure that these 8,000 individuals get the care that they need and that it's cost-effective for the state. Because these individuals are going to get their services. they're not. We're not just going to kick them out and say, guess what, you get no health care. They're going to get their health care, and it's going to be rendered in a emergency room or a hospital at dramatic cost to the state. Or
2: nursing homes. Or I mean, nursing homes. Because, I mean, that's what I've been hearing is that many of these people, especially the disabled, uh, would end up being forced into nursing homes because they need this care in order to stay in their home.
1: Right. That is correct. And, and, you know, I've already been hearing from uh, a couple of nursing homes that, okay, raising it from 21 points of acuity to 24 points of acuity doesn't do a whole lot for the nursing homes because they're just going to try every way possible to make sure that every individual is at 24. So are we actually getting a real representation of the level of care needed, or are we kind of, uh, are, are the providers kind of looking for a way to get to 24 just so that they could be Medicaid eligible?
0: So you kind of alluded to um, my lack of sense of what time it is, and it actually is very close to when the legislature comes back into session. Right. I think I told you that before the show, and you almost fainted given how, <laughs> uh, fa- how fast time has passed. So I'm curious, what are some of the other issues you think are going to be major points of discussion for the legislature? Because there were some major things passed this year. We've talked about it on the show many times, but there were also a lot of things that didn't get done. So. It's a broad question, but hopefully we can uh, drill down into some specificity.
1: Well, for for my for my interest area, you know, obviously is the budget. Um, I I think the real point of contention is is enough general revenue going to be available to us in order to address our call on the on the foundation formula, and if we can restore any of the uh, of the reductions in transportation as well, because um, school districts are. <laughs> I know especially a lot of rural school districts are still calling for that.
2: Yeah, well, in fact, that's what I was going to ask, if, if the governor and if the General Assembly and, repre- and legislators like yourself who have many rural districts within your district, if you're hearing a lot from them because transportation costs, as most of our listeners know, transportation costs in these rural districts uh, is often pretty high because their geographic <clears throat> area of the student's is pretty large in right. many cases
1: we have 522 school districts in the state of missouri and i have two districts that are in the top 25 for miles traveled by bus so whenever you reduce all almost all of the general revenue out of out of the the transportation costs uh they're kind of looking at me going yeah we you know Full funding of foundation formula—that's great, but boy, we'd really like to get some of the transportation costs back as well because we were a high utilizer of that. I think that's going to be on on the forefront uh, on if we can do that policy wise. um, You know, I'm always hopeful that ethics reform will move forward. Um, I think that we are, you know, coming out of summer caucus. um, The Speaker Todd Richardson is very committed. To getting that out of the house early on and fast i think we're going to do uh, probably just a rehash of the exact same bill get it over into the senate with ample time again and and hopefully put a little bit more pressure on the senate to actually get that done um and that and also an amendment two fix uh, we we're talking about as well making sure that all the tenants of amendment two are adhered by local and uh, county candidates as well as state. Because if we're going to have a set of ethics laws, we should hold our local and and our county candidates to the same standard as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that, because that's something that I have been highlighting for well over a year. Are you talking about putting campaign donation limits for county and municipal candidates? I think I think that it will absolutely be on the table. Can I ask why, given that the Republicans have typically
1: liked not having limits? If you, be, because right now you are going to see a a separate type of candidate in the state of Missouri. So you have your you have your statewide candidates, and you have your local and your municipal candidates. Yeah, doesn't make sense. And also there is some very there is some very real um, legal. Qu- or, Questions that are in limbo that the Missouri Ethics Commission has simply thrown up their hands and said uh, we have no idea. Yeah. So take for instance, um, uh, w- well, one of your one of your or one of your um, uh, uh, interviewees, uh, Doug Beck. He is a state representative. He's also on the school board. Mm-hmm. Can he raise unlimited amounts of money? I think for that's the school board. For the school board. But, but can can't. that school board member then make independent expenditures on behalf of other races? So there are a lot of questions. Not his
2: own, though. I mean, they're, Not they're,
1: his own, but. Oh, he absolutely
0: can make it on other correct, races. Correct. I mean, that's right. already been decided. And I, I brought up that point, I think, about five months ago. It's it, a loophole. It, it's a pretty, I don't want to say it's a substantial loophole because I don't know how many people would actually take advantage of it. But the loophole that you're talking about is, let's say, a big donor gives, Let's. I'm, I'm being very hypothetical here, 15 checks of $4,999 to a city council candidate in Herman, Missouri. So that then is not picked up by the 5,000 plus uh, tracker on the Missouri Ethics Commission. Let's just say that they get like $100,000 worth of donations. And then that person ends up running $100,000 worth of ads to help a governor candidate or a county commission candidate. Well, there's nothing an amendment to that will stop that. In fact, and, I'm, and I think you would require the legislature to act to even make that possible, essentially.
2: Yeah. And of course, the representative Offerman has just given a little indirect publicity to the story that I have on uh, our website now that Jason edited and actually um, helped get a little bit of the information for, which is about Uh, County Executive Steve Singer, who is a regional candidate, is not affected by the donation limits and is legally, fairly, uh, now the state's largest recipient as far as the number of large donations because uh, county and local candidates, as the representative just said, can't collect unlimited amounts.
1: So So many donors are getting money there. And, and, and you you know, you laid out a, a hypothetical that sounds completely ludicrous. But we've seen this happen. Chris Coster did it whenever he was attorney general. Uh, Rex Singfeld set up a 1,000 different PACs, and he and went back when, in 2008 when we had yes. limits. It happened, and it will happen again if we do not address it. And also, to, to, to point that out, um, say Steve Stanger wants to run as a statewide candidate. There's nothing prohibiting him in Amendment 2 from being a county candidate, raising unlimited amounts of money, and then deciding in five months— oh, hey, guess what? I want to run statewide. And then having a huge war chest that another potential candidate who wants a startup candidate would not have that advantage. I think it's about, if we're going to have standards, which we do have in now uh, because and of now Amendment it's 2. it's in the state constitution. And it's in the constitution. Let's make that applicable to all of our candidates and make sure that they're on the same playing field. I, I do want to point something out because I
0: did follow the Ethics Commission opinion on that particular topic. I do not believe that a county candidate can convert into a yes. statewide candidate without well, giving a, a lot of Correct. their money. Yes. But I'm sure that there are many different scenarios that they could do to make sure that they have a lot of money and it's spent on behalf of their candidate. Well, because
2: in theory, they could transfer it into a PAC, not their own PAC, although they could and either help others or transfer it to an independent pack Or a 501c4. Yes, yes. And the independent pack or 501c4, which doesn't have to report anything, could then use it on that person's behalf as long as they there, technically there, don't have any involvement.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think what we've clearly laid out is our ethics laws right now, because of what has stuck, what has not stuck, how poorly written Amendment 2 was, I think we can all... Safely say that it's a mess.
2: Yeah, but in fact, I mean, okay, taking the devil's advocate, they acted because the General Assembly and the then Governor Jay Nixon, who was a Democrat, kept knocking it, knocking the system of no limits. But then nothing ever really got done. And I am not, I am not endorsing Amendment Two. I'm just right. saying that that's what set the the climate for Amendment.
1: 2. I don't, Joe, I don't disagree with that one bit. I, I will point out that the Governor Nixon was extremely hypocritical in that, saying that I wish there was limits in and then taking 50 to $100,000 checks days after he vetoes legislation. I think that raises suspicion and and is incredibly hypocritical to say one thing and then do another.
0: We're going to get back to ethics and a little (laughs) bit later in the show, but I do want to talk about another policy area that's been a big topic of discussion in St. Louis, and that is the aftermath of Jason Stockley's uh, acquittal. I'm not really going to talk with our guest about the mechanics of the case I'm more interested in the policy uh, fallout from that because when I've talked to many people who are are protesting or some elected officials on the Democratic side who are sympathetic to the protest they and I ask, like what do you want to see from a policy standpoint they point to a lot of things that were proposed after Ferguson so that's independent investigations for police involved killings that's more uh, training for for police that is um, also just efforts to diversify police departments from a racial and, um, you know, even gender standpoint. Now, some of those things the legislature can't do, but some of them they can. And I'm interested to hear your take on what the legislature may or may not do, given that you came into office in 2015 when a lot of these same
1: issues came up. Right. So – so, yeah, you you threw a lot of a lot of them at me there. Oh, um, yeah. The, the independent investigations uh, or third party um, investigations, it, it sounds great. Um, the logistics of, of doing that are incredibly difficult. If you had a police or an officer shooting, say, in Gasconade County, um, even if you're looking at an adjacent county, you know, your, your next population center away from Herman, if you're going north to Montgomery County, you know, that's 45 minutes away. And then also who is qualified to do so to investigate that I mean we're, we're both of those counties are less than 15,000 people of those in uh, you know attorneys that know the law and know what is applicable to the case I mean you're you're really you're really small on your on your population that would even be able to handle that um the attorney general's office has has kind of uh weighed into this in the past um, they're not big fans of of doing it that way, um, but I, I think that should be at least something that is discussed um, at the Capitol um, whenever we and maybe you know maybe there's something that I'm not seeing and it's a terrible idea or maybe we can do it logistically. I don't know, but I think it's absolutely something that should be discussed. Now, going to, you point out diversity in a, in a police department, that's a very interesting question hmm. um, because you know it's kind of the uh, the argument between de facto and de jure um segregation you know in Franklin or Gascogne County there are less than 50 African-Americans in the entire county of 15,000 if you if you put a requirement that there has to be so much diversity in the police department you're simply not going to be able to to get that right I will point out that our our police chief in the city of Herman is an African-American mm. and um so I I it's just it, – I don't think you could get to a certain threshold if you put in a percentage or something like that. It's just – in rural Missouri, it's just not going to happen. And one of the things that our
0: our colleague Marshall Griffin has been looking at is the Missouri Highway Patrol's demographics. It's 94 percent white. I think 5 percent women as well. I'm not <laughs> – but again, even if you, like, said you have to make it a certain percentage, which I don't think you can legally do, I don't believe you, you, you still have to, like, make the pitch to – women and minorities to get them interested in joining the highway patrol, which is not always an easy option, especially when people who are interested in law enforcement may be more interested in working for a local police department, for example. I'm not sure if that's an issue that you're, you're totally familiar with, but that is something that I heard as well for, for a statewide agency like the highway
1: patrol. And the underlying thing that I'm a rural legislator, but Franklin County is adjacent to St. Louis County, which is not that far away from St. Louis City. Um, Honestly, I can, I can say with 100% sincerity that I don't know all of the demands that the protesters even want. All I see on, on the news, and I get all the St. Louis media, all I see is that people are angry, and I understand. I completely understand where they're coming from, but I don't know what they, it is that they want. And if that is not being communicated to someone who is in almost an adjacent county— it's certainly going to fall on deaf ears from someone from Lawrence County or southwest Missouri. So I, I think that there there, there obviously is a lot of anger and a lot of people that are trying to get politically motivated. But if that's not being communicated outside of St. Louis County, I don't know how effective these protests will ultimately be. And I hate to put it that way because, you know, I, 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 I absolutely understand their angst, but I don't know what they want.
0: Yeah, so that might be something that— I don't even want to say protest leaders, because it seems like this is something that's happened, I don't want to say organically, because there is some organization to it. But I, I think that's what some people who are prominent in this movement may have to articulate to people like you, when they're talking specifically about policy, because a lot of what they're doing is not necessarily about policy, it's about changing hearts and minds about how police interact with African Americans. But what we're, what we're talking about here is specifically policy. And I think that that what you said might be a challenge ahead for people that support this protest. How that
1: translates into policy in Jefferson City. Absolutely.
0: So I do want to talk again, kind of slipping from this to ethics again. Uh, One of the things that I have been following is there is this ballot initiative called Clean Missouri. It is multifaceted. I think there's about five or six different things. Yes. Um, And I might miss a couple of things here and we'll get to this part in a minute. Um, There is open records for legislative emails and documents. There is a, a, a increase in the revolving door um, ban for when legislators can become a lobbyist. There's a lobbyist gift ban type proposal in there. And there are some fairly modest changes to campaign finance law, but they do not address what we were just talking about with Amendment 2.
2: Right. Which- but it does require uh, that 501c4s, which are these nonprofits, which now do not have to report where their money comes from or where it goes. It does require them, if they're involved in Missouri campaigns, right, to to now to uh, report their their filings.
0: Um, the but the thing that I think is the most impactful of this is big changes to redistricting, which is a topic that Joe and I are both intimate with because we followed the redistricting process very closely in two thousand eleven. I'm sure that you followed redistricting processes in two thousand nineteen ninety one as well.
2: Oh, yeah. In fact, just so people know, <laughs> Congresswoman Ann Wagner, frankly, was in effect pretty much in charge of the redistricting in Missouri in the early 1990s, I mean, because of her status at that point. She was very active in the Republican Party, just FYI. So
0: the reason I'm bringing this up is if you listen to our last show, you know the redistricting process well because you were a staffer with the Missouri Republican Party in 2011. I know that from watching Twitter and from us talking off the cuff, you have some issues with this initiative
1: that I would
0: like to kind of talk about and flesh out a bit more.
1: Absolutely. Um, there are parts—whenever I, I first heard about Clean Missouri, I actually wanted to be on board. I wanted to—it almost sounded too good to be true. And it, it turns out, in my opinion, I do believe it's too good to be true. Um, the first and foremost, I think it is blatantly unconstitutional to group that many things together. Under the umbrella of ethics, and, and to put it in, into a constitutional amendment, I think that's blatantly unconstitutional. Constitution is pretty clear that you have to have a single subject that you're addressing, and I think you're addressing throwing uh, redistricting in under ethics. I don't think fits at all. But um, so you, you you look at some of these things, revolving door. I, I don't have a problem with revolving door. Um, the 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 minor changes that are made on campaign finance, you know, I'm not a big fan of campaign finance, but I've also never taken in a check that's larger than I think three thousand, and I think the, the the cap there is twenty. It would 100. lower it for
0: legislative candidates only. Yeah, I, I, I want to make so, that clear. It's not. It doesn't affect statewide
1: candidates. It doesn't affect PACs, and it doesn't affect local candidates. And I have a problem. I have a. I, I do have a fundamental problem with seeing and somehow putting a less worth into a house candidate versus a senate candidate versus a statewide candidate. I think there is a I think that lessens the importance a, a, that people have with their local legislators when you say, well, you're only worth $2500. But if you're a senator, you're so much more important, you're worth 3000. If you're statewide, you're worth 5000. I just I don't like that tiered system. Whatever it is, it should be applicable to all candidates, not a, on a tiered level. Okay. So, but but, but, the, but this is why I'm bringing this up. The redistricting
0: I, I I know I'm going to get some flack for saying this, but I think it needs to be said. I believe the redistricting aspect of this is by far the most important part of this initiative. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they put the other parts into it to make the redistricting part more yes. palatable. And I'm not saying the redistricting part is bad or I I'm would. not I'm not I'll, even, I'll say it. I'm not gonna even <laughs> say that that strategy is wrong, you know, of of trying to make a proposal and the main central focus of a proposal more palatable
1: by pairing it with other things. But explain why you think it's bad. I actually think the system that we have right now is is just fine. And right now we have basically um, we, we have one candidate, Republican and Democrat, appointed by every congressional district for the Missouri House. They come together and they try to write draw maps. The Senate has a slate of candidates that are appointed by the uh, Republican and Democratic Party. The governor picks. Five out of the 10 nominees, and they sit together and they draw maps. Um, If they cannot come up with maps, it is drawn by the appellate judges of the state of Missouri, which is why we have the House districts that we have. They were drawn 100% by the appellate judges, which was why I find it so funny when people talk about gerrymandering of of the legislative districts whenever they were not drawn by any partisan individuals whatsoever. They were done by appellate judges, which are... For, the House. Nature, the, for Sen- the House.
0: The Senate was drawn by a committee, and we, we can go through this very briefly. They, the, the first Senate map was found unconstitutional. The judges drew the second map that was then found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, which forced another commission to be uh, appointed, which eventually drew the map. So
1: And they came together on an agreement. And, and I think if you look at the ridiculous nature of Doug Liebla's Senate district, um, that was drawn to in an agreement. Between the Republicans and Democrats, I think enough times passed where I can probably talk about this. Yeah, um, let's talk it was, it about was, it. That was drawn <laughs> in. That was drawn specifically at the direction of Governor Nixon because he thought that putting in those two extra counties um, that kind of are kind of the tail, if, if you will, of Senator as district would have given uh, the Democratic candidate down there, and I can't remember his name, Terry was, Swinger. Terry Swinger. Yes, would have given him a two point better uh, Democratic percentage. And they thought maybe that was enough to swing that district. It, uh, it clearly was not. It was not. It was not even close. Not even close. But that's why. And, it, and if you go by from a com- com- uh, compactness standard, I mean, it doesn't look good whatsoever. And you could have easily sw- swapped in one other county and made it more compact. Okay. But that was a deal. The reason I bring that up is that there are deals that are cut and that both sides can come together on a map. Um, the the way that the clean initiative does this is it sets up an independent panel um, and it also puts way too much importance on a state demographer right it I, I've been trained by the RNC I've been trained by individuals um, of maptitude uh, of caliper Corporation I, I know demographics I know how to do this line of work there is no part of me that believes that you can do this uh Without having some type of a slant one way or the other, so whomever the the, the state demographer is, whether that is chosen by the governor or chosen by uh, I believe an independent and, panel, and
0: this is why this is like, and I and I, and please listeners correct me if I'm wrong. This is how it's done. I believe the state auditor will give three nominees to the Senate Republican leader and the Senate Democratic leader. They either have to agree on one of the three, or the auditor gets to pick. Now, again, I'm not trying to take a position over whether this initiative is bad or not. I do want to point out this scenario, which seems to be possible. Let's say a Republican becomes the next state auditor. From reading the, the, the language of this initiative, I don't believe there's anything to stop that Republican auditor from making Jeff Rowe, David Barklage, or John Hancock the demographer. Because and not- just
2: so you know, those are all Republican consultants. Who are
0: probably very well versed in how redistricting works. Each one of them involved in the registering process between 1991 and now. But none of them have been elected officials. I believe it says that it cannot be elected officials. And if I'm wrong about this, you can send hate (laughs) mail about it. But I feel like that is kind of a potential
1: shortfalling of this. Absolutely. The, the, the intention of clean initiative, I don't I don't um, I don't have a problem with. They're trying to take politics out of the redistricting process. My argument is it is absolutely impossible to do so, even with their language. It's impossible to take politics, at least now with the system we have. You know that the five Republicans and the five Democrats who come together to draw these maps. You know what they're trying to get at. Mm. You know exactly what they're trying to do. With the, the legislative districts as well, you know where you're coming from whenever you're drawing these districts. If you try to hide under the mask of a, oh, well, we're going to have an independent council do this, it's simply not going to happen. And I think a lot of this is going to be hashed out before this even gets to the ballot. It's going to be hashed out at the at the national level right. with the Supreme Court saying, you know, taking up the case, saying, can uh you know republican index democratic index of districts can that play a factor into the districts if that if they rule that it cannot be part of it then then it's a whole other can of worms that you open up and probably need to take a a better look at this
0: yeah and i just want to play devil's advocate though on the current system because there, because as i mentioned before joe and i followed this pretty closely and i saw shortcomings of the current system too like for example for instance for the Senate maps, you can't split counties. So you have very odd situations where West County of St. Louis County is paired with Franklin County, even though the two have very little to do with one another, when it may have made more sense to have like a St. Charles and St. Louis County district. Um, you know, and, th- and also you could also make the argument that judges drawing the districts is not necessarily a good thing because they probably do it in secret. They probably don't understand what they're doing, most likely, because they're not trained on how to draw districts, and, and it's probably clerks drawing it. And they the
2: are others. under a lot of political pressure. And they are. I mean, I've I, heard, mean you, I mean, the representative just laid out one case.
0: So I mean, I don't know if this is particularly the initiative to do it, but would you acknowledge that the current system? does have some shortcomings and may need to be reexamined.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. But this is a coordinated effort. You're actually seeing these type of initiatives done nationwide. Um, there is a coordinated effort, and I'll go ahead and be the person that says it. There's a coordinated effort by uh, the national DNC to get a rein in on some of these legislative districts and how they're drawn. Um, some states have their actual legislative body draw their own maps. Um, I think that's probably not the the route that we should go down even though the legislator does draw legislature rather uh, does draw the congressional districts um, I, I don't think that would be the the route we want to go down. I think there could be some absolutely some some changes that are made to our current statutes as as we redistrict but again a lot of this is going to be dictated at what the what the, the the Supreme Court says is allowable or not. That's going to have, I mean, you're talking about upending the entire system, if potentially, of how we've drawn districts for the past 200 years. Yes, and, and no one, even you know, back in the 1780s, whenever you know you had your first redistricting, you're still having a little bit of political uh, influence into these districts, whether you want to admit it or not. It happens.
0: And, and one of the things in the Clean Missouri Initiative is that it has to take, an, and I may be paraphrasing, your partisan fairness into account, which. Which may actually be what ends up happening if the Supreme Court rules that partisan redistricting is unconstitutional. So in some sense, I don't want to say it's redundant, but they may actually achieve their goal without doing anything if the Supreme Court
1: decides that's how it should be done. But that's that in essence, that is the most asinine way of drawing districts. And I believe it's almost impossible jason how do you draw a district a congressional district so say say that we're we're talking about congressional districts how do you draw a competitively competitively fair republican 50 percent democrat 50 percent, with st louis county or st louis city unless you draw that district going from st louis city through franklin county or maybe through st charles you're not going to get a 50 50 district i don't think you by the population of where they where they nest themselves i don't think you can and i and i And I think that that's one of the issues for Democrats going forward.
0: We can talk more broadly now about kind of the challenge ahead. I know you're a Republican, but it kind of goes into the the challenge for Democrats. The Democratic populations in the state are basically clustered in Kansas City, St. Louis, and to some extent, Columbia, although Columbia Mm -hmm. is getting a lot more, the Boone County is getting a lot more Republican. So the problem for Democrats on a state legislator level and on a congressional level is even if you have a system that may make redistricting more advantageous for them, it's going to be very difficult to find districts of 35,000 people and 125,000 people where you get enough Democrats to make it competitive in some of the rural parts of the state where they've completely right. collapsed.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, you know, I, I understand if, you're, if you've been in the minority party this long, um, you, you would like to see something change that maybe would be advantageous to your party, but- you know, Franklin County. I would, I would, I will gladly give up uh, my district to the hands of the Democrats. I would say, go ahead and try to draw a Democratic district. It's just not going to happen.
2: I mean, I think every state is different. I mean, but in Missouri, yes, Missouri, very much. It's the way the population is. It's very much part. I mean, partisan. Yeah. I mean, just it just is.
1: And you're not going to get a Republican district in in St. Louis City, and I understand that. So I don't understand. If you draw the legislative districts differently, how that is going to be advantageous for one party over the other, I think you still probably get the same, uh, the same breakdown no matter how you draw the districts. Well, I appreciate
0: this rousing uh, discussion about (laughs) redistricting. It is one of the topics that, believe it or not, I get most excited about. (laughs) And we've run out of time. And that's why we have
2: podcasts (laughs) about it.
0: So uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... J
2: Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can
0: follow the representative on Twitter at... Uh, Justin Alf. J-U-S-T-I-N-A-L-F. Sorry for interrupting, but we'll be back next time. Until then, so long.